Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. In this episode of Transform Your Workplace, Kelly Thompson, she's an author, speaker, and advocate for women in leadership. She talks about her own experiences taking on invisible work. She also provides clarifying questions that women can ask when assigned tasks that won't advance them towards leadership positions. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's all about women empowerment. So I'm excited to share this discussion with you. Make sure to connect with Kelly on social media. Links are in the show notes. And of course, make sure to connect with me. And I love hearing from listeners. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Kelly, it's such a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm excited. You wrote a, an article, a very interesting one in, in Huffington Post. You wrote that women do the most invisible work in the office. And I'm curious what experiences you've had personally or even observations that you've made that led you to believe this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think maybe it's best just to tell the story that I told yep. in the, the Huff Post article. You know, I was was called to do, okay, so every company that you work for, maybe not every, like every company likes to have like the corporate fundraiser, right? Lots of companies like to get behind some sort of annual fundraiser, annual event, right? Well, you need a person to lead that event. <laughs> and so it doesn't just like happen that people are like, oh, sure, take all my money. So they reached out to me. And they're like, hey, we would love for you to lead this year's blank fundraiser. I won't say the name of the fundraiser. They're a very well-known nonprofit. They do great things. My first response was like, I don't know. I mean, I'd seen other people do this and I knew the work that it took. Like, you know, the company that I worked for was over 3,000 people and to try to get everybody together, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But my leader was like, well, you should really think about it because, you know, this is going to give you a lot of exposure. Okay, so that's like red flag number one. Well, yeah, exposure. What does that really mean? Is it like good for my career? Is it good? Yeah, and so exposure to yeah senior leadership, and I'm like, okay, okay, fine. Like I'm feeling like I at this point I'm young in my career. I feel like I need to say yes. I don't even have language for like this unpaid workload stuff, right? So I say yes. And of course, the majority then of my time is spent, you know, trying to get meetings together, work with the different department heads, get people excited about raising money for this cause, you know, putting forth reports. And it's not just, you know, the two to three hours a week I was spending in meetings about it, but it was also kind of that emotional labor of like, preparing mentally for the meetings, preparing the numbers for the meetings, dreading the meetings, like keeping notes after the meetings. And so we get to the whole thing, right? It's supposed to bring me all of this exposure. And I will never forget sitting, uh, I was standing actually, because there was this reception and we had exceeded our goals by a little bit, which was really exciting. And every year there is a, like an executive sponsor. So like I'm the person who led the effort, but there's always like a senior chief executive who is like the, the, the face behind it. 
And so he's giving you know, who gets all the credit. Yeah, exactly. He's giving all the words of affirmation. And I remember I'm standing up. We're on the top floor of our tower and I'm standing behind all of these men. And I remember thinking I could barely see the guy give his remarks because I'm little. I'm like five, three. And I'm standing behind all these six foot tall you know, guys because all the corporate leaders were men. And he's you know, taking the credit and talking about all the efforts. And he's like, oh, yeah. And by the way, Kelly was the one that led our effort this year. Let's give her some thanks. And that was it. And like, yeah, I might get golf club. So I remember thinking to myself, I was so deflated because here was supposed to be this opportunity that was going to give me all this exposure. And honestly, like it was a two second mention. I didn't have language for it at the time. Nobody talked about this sort of stuff. It wasn't until I would say about two or three years ago where I started to actually see this conversation happening in the media of the unpaid workload of women. And it was very somewhat kind of the personal stuff, like the extra things that women do at home when they have families like cooking and cleaning, making the doctor's appointments, et cetera. But it was was then, you know, a lens of a deeper level of research saying, no, actually women are taking a lot of unpaid work at the office. And that's when it all clicked. And I was like, oh, I've been there. I've led the things for exposure. I've taken the meeting notes. Yeah. Fundraiser event. This was an extra thing on top of the job that you already had, right? Yes. So you're carving out three, four hours a week, running meetings, planning meetings, and event planning is so hard. Like I, I'm in marketing and I, like, it's hard. I, I, it's one of the things I hate the most. Oh, I hire out for that now. <laughs> yeah. That was smart. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. So like if you replay this entire situation, you get asked to do something like that, or let's say you decide to do it again, even knowing what you know now, what could have been different about, you know, from the leader's perspective, what could they have done differently to make you feel not so invisible? Yeah. So I think there's two pieces of advice I would give my younger self. The first one, I would be a little bit more clear about the rewards that would be coming from this sort of effort because it was like a job and a half. I had my job and then you said it was like a half job. So let's just talk about that. We need people to lead it. There are some skills that are learned in this process. Like let's not toss that aside, right? But then let's also talk about, well, what does that mean for me come review time? What does that mean in terms of a spot bonus? What does that mean in terms of my annual increase? Because, you know, if there would have been like a spot bonus or an increase in, in salary beyond what's normal, then all of that might've been worth it, right? Because it's not unpaid. Like that's been reflected because I've paid you. And so that's the advice I give for women today. Hey, if somebody's going to call you to lead the employee resource group, ask, is, was there a spot bonus for that? Because that's a lot of unpaid labor. I'd say the second thing that I learned, and I didn't learn this until I went to go start working for smaller companies, was the power of outsourcing. You just said it. There were things that I was like dog and pony showing together that honestly, we should have just outsourced it to an event planning company. It probably, you know, in terms of what they're paying me for salary and benefits, it probably actually would have been cheaper for them just to outsource some of those things. And so advice to my younger self, what I often tell my clients is, is that's a helpful question to ask. What in this process can you outsource to a professional so that you're not killing yourself every single day and working hours you shouldn't be for things that you just are not in your zone of genius? Yeah, that's interesting. So if you look at from that moment, I'm sure there's been other moments too, where you probably reflected on, but like what really leaving corporate America, going off on your own, what sort of reflection have you done about this invisible work that often falls to women? So I ask myself, um, like just a simple coaching question. And that is this, is this mine to own? Because one of the things that I learned, and I think, you know, maybe women, I don't like to be super generalizing about it, are conditioned to be helpful. 
and we take on things because, you know, we want to be the expert or the doer or, you know, be helpful, whatever that looks like. I really start to have to ask myself this question, like, is this mine to own or is this someone else's to own? Like, is this something that I should be doing? And honestly, like asking that question has been so helpful because I think sometimes the next question is, well, if I don't know, the next question I can ask myself is like, is this even aligned to my values? Especially running a business today, there's a lot of things that I could take on and own and tackle and shiny object syndrome and scope creep. But I have to think about like, is this aligned to my values? And if the answer is no, then I either need to say no, or I need to bring in someone else who can help or who can do that at home, at work, whatever that looks like. So if you let's say you went through that situation again, uh, where you're asked to help plan that fundraiser, what kind of language would you use to I guess what questions would you ask to get more clarity around the exposure? And then if you're going to decline it, what are some appropriate ways to do that without fear of losing your job or something like that? Yeah. And I think that this really sets up nicely. Like since I've left corporate America, I kind of came up with this at the end, but I've really been using it in my entrepreneurship practice and my coaching practice is that I teach women how to do less and less is a framework. It's losing the limiting beliefs that we have, which I'm, that's how I'm going to answer your question here in a second. It's expressing your expectations. And that's how the second part of how I answer your question, shifting your identity from doer to leader, and then starting to delegate. So I would use the first two. So if I were ever asked that again, I would need to start with the L and be like, okay, what limiting beliefs do I have around this in, in simpler language? Why do I believe I need to say yes when I really want to say no? If I would go back to younger self, Kelly, it would be, if I don't say yes to this, people are going to think I'm not capable. If I don't say yes to this, people are going to think I am not a team player. If I don't say yes to this, people will think that I'm not supportive or I'm going to disappoint people. And so I would really have to start to like really dig into that question. Like, is that true? Is that true that if I say no, people are going to think I'm not capable? Actually, probably the opposite's true. If I say yes to too many things, I'm going to spread myself too thin and then people are really going to know I'm not capable. And so I think sometimes it's, you really got to slow down and think about what you're thinking about. Well, and if you think about like just women in general, I mean, I know my wife is, she's a superhero. Like she's working doing stuff at home. And I, you know, I try to do my best too, but women get spread really thin when you consider all the extra stuff that they do outside of the office as well. And if they're doing more stuff in the office, that really isn't part of their job scope. That's where it gets really complicated. Mm -hmm. They get spread really thin. Yeah. And so then the second part of that is the E is the expressing of your expectations and setting boundaries. And so I have a boundary setting framework that I learned in corporate. I used to run training programs and in organizations, a lot of people like to use training as a solution for everything. Oh, just send them to training, just send them to training, you know? So I had to learn to have some conversations with other leaders about how, you know, sometimes training doesn't always fix the issue. So it sounded like this, like step one was always just to be grateful and to thank them for coming to you. Hey, you know, at least they thought of me. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you for thinking of me for leading this massive company-wide fundraiser, right? The second one is to let people know what you value or what you're working towards. So this could be like, you know, one of the things I'm really focused on is this strategic initiative of XYZ that has to be launched by X date. Step three is to let people know then what you can't accommodate. Because we are so focused on getting this launched by X date, I don't think I'm going to have the time that this initiative requires to make it successful. And then step four is just to be collaborative, say, but I would be happy to sit and discuss how I can advocate for this, who might be the next best choice. You know, it's really important about like, you know, you can set boundaries and say no, but you don't just want to cut folks off at the knees, right? No, I can't do that. It's how do we have conversations recognizing being a little grateful, 
you know, assuming positive intent, stating your values, letting you know what you can accommodate, but being collaborative in the process. And I think at home, I think it's, it works just the same. It's like, Hey, you know what? I have some things I have to accomplish tonight. And so I could really use your help with getting the kids to bed. Is that something you can help me with tonight? I mean, it's little things about stating your values and what you can do and what you can't do. comes down to communication, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> I know. Dang it. At the end of the day, it comes down to communication. God, it's so hard, though. So hard. I know. So um, in the article, you mentioned a stat. I think Harvard Business Review, they found that 40 women get 44% more requests than men to do non-promotable tasks at work. So I want you to define what are like non-promotable, what do you mean by that non-promotable tasks? Uh, what kind of tasks would you put in that category? And then overall, like, why do you think this is happening? That's a big number. Yeah, it is. So Linda Babcock, she's an author. I think she coined the term non-promotable tasks. And what it really boils down to is there things that we do at the office that perhaps get the work done, but they don't really contribute to results. They don't contribute to our performance. Ultimately, these are the things that aren't accounted for on our performance reviews. So this might look like, and I'm just crowdsourcing for myself personally and from my audience, note-taking. Noticing how often you are the person who is volunteering to take the notes. Or if you're a leader, do you just very inadvertently ask women to take the notes? Because not only are they taking the notes in the meeting, which distracts them from strategic discussion, but then they have to type up and send the notes after the meeting, right? And that keeps them from their work. Little things like my clients are like, I'm the only person that knows how to change the printer cartridge in the office. Um, whenever we have holiday events, they're the one that wants me to coordinate it. Why am I always the person that, you know, anytime we want to start a new employee resource group, I'm being asked to lead the meetings. You know, I'm the only person that knows how the filing system works or how to scan these certain things. I mean, it can be little, like I like to call it office housework. And I think sometimes women, because when we look at traditional gender roles, like we talk about the corporate environment is a patriarchal environment. This is not men. It's just that. For hundreds of years, it was men who went to the office and women who stayed home. And so men tend to get more of the big decision-making, big leadership, big strategic sort of tasks. And women who've come up to the workforce, typically in support roles, are continually given support tasks. And so if we aren't mindful as leaders about our distribution of work, we can continue to perpetuate some of these gender issues where women get more non-strategic tasks, more busy work. And then told, hey, well, you're not strategic. And so we really have to be mindful of that. You know, with what you're saying right now, it reminds me weeks ago, I did an interview and somebody had mentioned that they had to hop out of corporate America to start their own business to get business strategy experience, just to hop back in to corporate America to get a C-level position. Are you seeing that? I mean, I don't, hopefully, hopefully you're not doing that at the moment because yeah. I, I, it's, that makes sense to me. You know... This is really interesting that you're picking up on this. One, I have a joke that when people try to hire me, I like to say I'm unemployable because I love being my own boss. I'm like, I don't even know if I could ever work for someone again. So that that's my personal, I love, I love being an entrepreneur. However, I currently have two clients who happen to be women who are fully capable of chief level roles and have applied and applied and applied and applied. Both of them have gone out on their own to do kind of advisory consulting sort of work at the C-level and have told me, I have a text from one of them that says, what am I supposed to do with all of these job offers and interviews for chief level roles? So, so that was never her intention, 
to go out to come back in. It's just that she's gone out. She can be strategic. People see her value. Yeah, absolutely. They want to hire her. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird though? They they get out into an advisory consulting type role, prove their value at a strategy level. But when they were working inside of an office, they weren't given opportunities to to show that strategy. That What can employers do differently to make sure that women get a chance to be at the table and, and show what, what they're capable of? So one of the things I write about in my book, Closing the Confidence Gap, this book is written for two audiences. It's a both-hand approach. So when you hear the title, Closing the Confidence Gap, you might be thinking that I'm helping primarily women reading this book Um, speak up and lead with more confidence and you would be right. But I also address in this book what needs to change systemically in organizations because we can't just tell women, oh, it's your problem. You need to get rid of your doubt and your imposter syndrome. Like, no, there's actually some systemic things that are causing what you're describing. And what I say is it's not just constantly helping women be more confident. It's we need to help more women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. We need more diverse leadership teams that can change the systems at work. We're not going to be able to do this, you know, as women. Can we change workplaces one woman at a time? Yes, and we also need enough courageous leaders to say, you know what, we need diverse leadership teams that can debunk old ways of leading, that can create more systemic equities, um, that can just change the way that we delegate, change the way that we lead, change the policies that we make. I honestly believe that we won't see real change in organizations until we see equity, especially in gender roles um, in leadership at the table, but even more importantly with neurodiversity, people of color. Honestly, this is not a social justice issue. Research shows time and time again that companies who are more diverse, have more women in leadership, are more profitable. This is an economic issue at the end of the day. I 100% agree. I mean, on that note, are there long-term costs associated with women sort of being stuck in this uh, where they're not able to to elevate to a leadership role or get a seat at the table and, and doing these non-promotable type of tasks all the time. It seems like there would be long-term costs associated with this. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. There is long-term costs. So McKinsey has done some research and what they found is the burnout toll is real. So let's just talk about those costs. So you've got the burnout toll. So it's impacting mental health. So it's like the um, emotional cost, the mental health. But then what's happening is because women are burning out, we know from the data that COVID has impacted women and they've left the workforce. And so if they haven't left the workforce, they're considering leaving the workforce. And so then that causes an organization to, it impacts an organization's paycheck in the form of turnover. Because when you lose people, I mean, I think the research tends to show it costs one and a half times someone's annualist salary to replace them. So it's not only costing them in turnover costs, but what it's also costing organizations is when you have a labor pool that's uneven, right? You have a lot of women not in the workforce. It's also costing you in your talent pipeline. So my clients, when I talk to people and recruiters in the world today, we're talking to women and women are going to your website and they're looking at your leadership team before they apply for a job. And if your leadership team is all white men, they're not applying like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be either the token woman or be there. And so it's costing you in ways you can't even see. So it costs you in turnover. It costs you in disengagement and burnout. And it costs you in a reduced talent pipeline, which is future potential, future results. Yeah. I mean, so the costs, the economic costs are, are real for an organization, it sounds like. What can employers or, or senior leaders do to make this shift if they recognize there's a problem? And hopefully they're listening to this podcast and be like, huh, 
yeah, it's all all men on the leadership team. Maybe we do need to make a shift and stop giving busy work to our very talented strategic women. Uh, what kind of changes should we should employers make? Yeah, I always love to start with the data. Data is really hard to argue with. And so um, I have a couple examples of organizations who did this, and I'll just illustrate that. So I had a couple of organizations who were starting to see just some turnover in, in female leadership. They had very wise leaders, like, right, just tuning into some of the things that are happening, right? These conversations, just like you and I are having. And so they went to the data first and they said, well, let's take a look. How many women are turning over at a certain level? Um, when promotions are happening, how often is a man chosen over a woman? Let's look at the data. Who's in our who's in our leadership, right? And so what they started to do was they started to actually just look at the hard data of what the turnover rates were by gender, who was promoted by gender. They looked at exit interview data, and that was really important because what these organizations told me is like we couldn't go in and kind of like with a hard punch on unconscious bias training or diversity training, they're like, what actually opened people's eyes was actually seeing the data. Hey, here's what's actually happening and here how the, here's the hard costs of this. Here's how this is impacting our results. Then people became open to, okay, because this is a problem, here are some ways that we can solve this problem. And so then enter in some of the things that you just suggested, which is, you know, just awareness, diversity training on things like when you are delegating a task, just notice if you tend to give more housework, office tasks, non-promotable tasks, the women on your team. Are you always telling Julie to take notes, right? But you've never asked Sam to take notes. And so just noticing little tendencies, little biases, and just really encouraging folks to think about changing their habits so that they can have some different results. So that's the employer side of the equation. But I think as individuals, women could, there's probably some steps that they can take to up-level their skills, their confidence. I mean, you wrote an entire book on confidence, right? So how do women position themselves to like decline some of that busy work and stand up for themselves and say like, look, I'm more capable than what you're giving me and I deserve the recognition. I deserve a seat at the table. What do you encourage women to do? Yeah. Well, first I like to tell, I, I say, I'm like, Hey, you have permission. I, you called your wife a superhero. She is but a I tell superhero. Her, you, you have permission not to be the person that is rushing in to save the day all day because it perpetuates a cycle. And so I'll kind of re revisit back to my do less framework, like starting with the L let's lose some limiting beliefs here. Why do you believe you need to say yes? And you need to rush in and be the superhero. Like what is keeping you stuck saying yes, when you want to say no, let's start with the mindset stuff. Then the expressing of the expectations, let's set some boundaries. Like, let's be very clear on what we're saying yes to. And is it an alignment with your career goals? Is it an alignment with your career strategy? Is this even an alignment with your values? The S is to shift your identity from doer to leader. And this is where it gets tricky because, you know, as human beings, the first half of our life, we are rewarded for our individual contributions, gold stars. Brandon, you are amazing. You saved the day. You did so good. And you're like, oh, it feels so good. I'm collecting all my gold stars. Like we have a very individual reward. But as leaders, it's less about what we do and the gold stars we collect and less about being the superhero and more about how we're delegating that work. And so when women get those requests to say, hey, can you take notes? I'm like, you know, actually, I want to participate in the meeting. I want to be present strategically. So I think maybe what we should do is somebody should um, record and we'll get it transcribed. Or we'll have that we'll bring in like an administrative assistant, somebody whose job literally is to type notes, right, to bring that individual in. And so then the last one, so yeah, shifting the identity from doer to leader, 
you know, embracing that leadership capacity, delegating what's keeping you stuck and unstrategic. And that is the last one, which is start delegating. And I always tell women, delegate, start delegating when the stakes are low. Because I think a lot of times what keeps us stuck is that we wait until we hoard and we hoard and we hoard. And then all of a sudden we're overworked and we're burnt out. And then we want to delegate, but the stakes are so high that you're waiting to the like last minute and you're like, oh, I need to delegate this out. But there's this person cannot make a mistake because the president of the company is going to see this. Start delegating when the stakes yeah. Or low. So funny, like I, in the corporate world, I call this like hero ball. It's kind of like I'm an NBA fan. And you know, when somebody's going one-on-one trying to do everything, they're not passing the ball, they're shooting every shot, they're trying to do everything right. I call that hero ball. It's the same in the corporate world. It's like, I'll take every task because I get this, I don't know if it's a hit of dopamine or whatever we get in our brain that says like, wow, I feel really good right now because I just took notes or I did this, but it's not moving the needle strategically. And so I remember years ago, you know, moving into a leadership role. And it was like less about the individual recognition I'm getting for my, you know, basic contributions anymore. It's more about like, now it's through my people, I'm delegating and letting them shine. And it's hard for leaders. I imagine if, if women were, I mean, with households, for example, women have kept households together. Um, they're doing a great job at work too. And so if they're consuming all those things um, and not delegating, I could see where that could be a problem. Yeah. And it's being okay. Like we got to give folks a lot of like grace, you know, like be clear about what you want people to help you with. Keep the stakes really low, right? Like, let's just be honest. I got a teenager and I started delegating things to her when she was little cleaning the bathroom. Cause I don't want to clean the bathroom, right? Doing <laughs> I try that for my kids and they just don't listen to me. So. <laughs> oh gosh. And let me tell you, was it done to my standards? No, it wasn't, but I was clear. This is what you need to do by when, and this is what good looks like. This is what good results look like. Okay. And we, it's gotten better. I'll tell you, it's gotten better. And like, when you're a leader, when you delegate, you also have to give people the authority. So like when I would delegate as a leader, I would go to my peers and say, Hey, I'm no longer attending this meeting because Brandon's there fully capable of making the decisions. So Brandon has the authority to make decisions and he'll communicate them back to me. If I don't give you the authority and you're in the meeting and everybody still has to come back to me, like we're undermining you. And so with women too, it's like, okay, let's make sure we give them the authority to make the decision so that they're not going around. And then the last one is the whole grace piece. When you delegate, when the stakes are low, you're right. Your kids won't clean the bathroom the way you want. She won't do her laundry the way I think it is. They're not going to prepare the PowerPoint presentation the way I would do it. But it's those little repetitions of low stakes moments where you really have to ask yourself, am I being a perfectionist, which is making me take it over? Or is this their way? And that's okay because it's still getting us the results we need. I think it's well said. The low stakes times where it's easy to do. I think that's beautifully said. I think that's um, probably a good first step for women is to recognize those low stake moments where they can push it out to other people. I love that. What else from, you know, an action item perspective would you encourage women to do at this point? So they're either not doing the invisible work or they're delegating it or not volunteering for it or just, you know, from a skill development or, or positioning themselves for to be a leader. What do you recommend? There's two things. When I work with clients who are really, really stuck in this cycle, taking on a lot of work because they feel deeply responsible for it, I have them kind of do one of two things. So one, it goes back to if you were not in the room and you wanted people to use three words to describe you as a leader, what would they be? And I get, I get a whole host of answers. And so that oftentimes kind of tunes and clues them into their leadership values, what they value as a leader. 
So I asked them, is all of this work that you're doing, like, is that helping people describe you as such? And usually the answer is no. They're like, actually, all this work is keeping me. So I try to like bring them up 50,000 feet. Like, how do you want people to describe you when you're not in the room? Who do you know in your leadership sphere of influence that kind of embodies these words, right? This is not about copying them. This is about like aspiring, right? To be like, well, what does strategic look like? What does leveling up look like? And sometimes it's really hard to know like what the right next step is. But what I can tell you from both personal experience and from working with my clients, they can definitely tell you what they don't want. And that's usually where we start. Okay. So if you know how you want people to describe you when you're not in the room, you have some 50,000 foot view on what a strategic leader looks like, acts like, talks like, okay, now let's come back down and say, what are you doing today that is not that? (laughs) And let's start with that. Okay. We can dump it. That's a good place to start. Can I just can I just dump it? I don't need to do this anymore. It can just be dumped. I don't need to sit in this meeting. Can I delegate it? Who else on my team or in my family has this capacity? And if I can't dump it and I can't delegate it, then can I outsource it? Can I hire somebody to plan the party? So dump it, delegate it, and outsource it. I love that. Good advice. Uh, Kelly, I mean, it's been so fun having you on the show. What you know, where can people connect with you or get your book? Anything like that you'd want to share with people before we part? Yeah, absolutely. So you can learn more about my book at closingtheconfidencegap.com forward slash book. I love to hang out on Instagram and LinkedIn. So um, I'm there at Kelly Ray Thompson, Kelly with an I, R-A-E Thompson on both Instagram and LinkedIn. So you can find me there and we can chat and I'd love to hear from you. So excellent. Kelly Thompson, thank you for being part of Transform Your Workplace. A lot of fun to talk. Yes. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. You bet.